Today is Friday, June 17th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinadofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, NATO pledges to bolster forces along its eastern borders to dissuade further Russian aggression in Ukraine. This will mean more NATO forward-deployed combat formations to strengthen our battle groups in the eastern part of the alliance, more air, sea, and cyber defenses, The UN says over 89 million people were driven from their homes by war and human rights abuse last year. UN High Commissioner for Refugees Filippo Grandi says the figures are made even worse when the number of people forced to flee by Russia's invasion of Ukraine is included. And Australia's foreign minister travels to New Zealand to counter China's growing security and trade threats. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. As the war in Ukraine drags on amid intense fighting in the east, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says defense ministers must bolster forces and deterrence along the military alliance's eastern borders to dissuade Russia from planning for the aggression in Ukraine. This will mean more NATO forward-deployed combat formations to strengthen our battle groups in the eastern part of the alliance, more air, sea and cyber defenses, as well as pre-position equipment and weapon stockpiles. That's NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. A top U.S. official says information about what transpired in Mariupol strongly suggests Russian armed forces committed serious violations of international humanitarian and human rights law in the besieged Ukrainian city. U.N. Rights Chief Michel Bachelet presented an oral update on the grave situation in Mariupol Thursday to the U.N. Human Rights Council. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. UN monitors who were unable to access Mariupol due to the security situation gathered information from people who had left the city and from satellite imagery. The High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michel Bachelet, presented a sobering picture of what occurred between February and the end of April in Mariupol, which she described as the deadliest place in Ukraine. In chronological order, She described Russia's unrelenting airstrikes, rocket attacks, tank and artillery shelling that turned this once thriving city of half a million people into rubble and ashes. She presented statistics on the extensive destruction of residential homes, public buildings, hospitals and other structures harboring civilians, many of whom were killed. After three months, Russia took control of Mariupol. Bachelet says conditions in the city are dire. She says residents have limited access to medical care and other basic services and that people cannot leave and return freely. The tragedy of Mariupol is far from over, and the full picture of the devastation caused is not yet clear. The city can eventually be rebuilt, but the horrors inflicted on the civilian population will leave their indelible mark, including on generations to come on the parents who had to bury their own children, on all those who had to leave a much-loved city with uncertain prospect of ever seeing it again. 
Russia's ambassador to the UN in Geneva, Gennady Gatilov, contested the High Commissioner's assessment of the situation in Mariupol. He said Russian forces had fully liberated Mariupol from what he called Ukrainian Nazi formations. For eight years, he said Mariupol had been held hostage by Ukrainian neo-Nazis. Now, he added, peace was returning and calm resuming. Tatiana Lomakina, an official in the office of the president of Ukraine, accused Russia of mounting an unlawful and unjustified war against her country. She said Russia should not escape with impunity for the crimes it has committed. She urged the international community to ensure accountability. Lomakina said Mariupol would forever remain an integral part of Ukraine. She vowed her government would not rest until its people were freed again. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The economic sanctions imposed on Russia after its military intervention in Ukraine are causing a domino effect across all spheres of a country's economy. For the average Russian, that translates into a sharp rise in prices. Jonathan Spear narrates this report from Moscow. Grocery shopping in a Russian supermarket today is up to 20% more expensive than it would have been before Vladimir Putin sent his troops into Ukraine. The price increase affects all products, while others produced in the West have stopped reaching the shelves altogether. Analysts say the situation may get worse. Natalia Zubrovich is a Moscow-based economist. Everyone realises that the sanctions will last for a long, long period of time, she says. Not for months, but for years. The incomes of the population won't increase for a long time. People will become even poorer. Western sanctions have left Russian manufacturers without spare parts and other materials. Analysts say sales volumes in some sectors, such as the automobile industry, have fallen by more than 80%. Dmitry Potapenko is a Moscow businessman and economist. The situation in Russia is, though slowly, changing for the worst, he says, because on the one hand there are branches of industry that have completely ceased to exist. The official figures paint a different picture. The Russian president recently praised Russia's reported low unemployment numbers. I would like to point out the low unemployment rate. In April, the unemployment rate in Russia was at a historical low, and in May, he says, the number of officially registered unemployed people did not increase or even declined slightly. On the streets, the perception of the crisis varies between skepticism and concern. Estela Kamaneva used to work in the film industry. She is now unemployed and struggling to live with rising prices. Inflation certainly affects us because the prices have increased considerably, she says, to add to that, especially on medications, on food. Artyom Bodok works in IT and is also worried. All the food products have become more expensive, he says, practically all of them, quite considerably. Some are conscious that Russians are not alone in dealing with rapidly rising prices and growing shortages. Roman Markov, who lives off his pension, sees things from a wider perspective and doesn't blame the sanctions for a much wider cost-of-living crisis. It does not affect Russia much. I have no idea what is going on abroad, he says. In the US and Europe, the inflation is very high. It does not affect Russia. 
As economists predict a continued increase in prices and the crippling of some industries due to supply shortages on the streets of Moscow, it may appear to be just another summer. Jonathan Spear, VOA News. Thursday's visit to Ukraine by four European Union leaders comes ahead of a key decision on Kyiv's EU candidacy expected next week and as tensions grow over Europe's long-term commitment to the war. From Paris, Lisa Bryant has more on the impact of the leader's visit, including its effect on election politics in France. Speaking to reporters from Kyiv's war-ravaged suburb of Bucha, France's President Emmanuel Macron said his visit with the leaders of Germany, Italy and Romania underscored the European Union's strong political support for Ukraine and its respect for its people's courage. Macron dismissed controversy within the EU over his remarks that aggressor Russia should not be humiliated in finding an exit to the conflict. He said France had been by Kiev's side from the beginning. Ukraine has also criticized Macron's call for a so-called interim European political community group for non-EU members. The Ukraine visit by the four EU leaders comes a day before the bloc's executive arm is expected to recommend granting Ukraine EU candidacy status. The EU's 27 members are expected to make a decision during a summit next week. Even if its candidacy is approved, Ukraine will likely wait years to become an EU member, but Kiev says the move is symbolically important. But the outcome is uncertain. Members like Poland and the Baltic states strongly support Ukraine's candidacy. Others, like Portugal and Denmark, have voiced reservations. The biggest EU countries appear lukewarm. But during a visit to Moldova Wednesday, Macron seemed to back candidate status. Tensions with Kyiv have also surfaced over the strength of the EU military, political and financial support for Ukraine as it battles the Russian invasion. Meanwhile, European leaders face eroding support at home for the conflict amid rising prices and supply shortages. A poll by the European Council on Foreign Relations Policy Institute finds one-third or more of all EU citizens want the war to end as soon as possible. Macron faces extra pressure ahead of legislative elections Sunday that may eliminate his majority in France's lower house. Macron fait un choix qu'il aurait pu faire il y a une semaine ou il y a dix jours. His far-right rival, Marine Le Pen, accuses Macron of profiting politically from his trip to Ukraine. Meanwhile, another political rival, Jean-François Copé of the centre-right, faults Macron for taking his eyes off the elections that may see a far-left win. The house is burning, Copé told French Radio, and Macron is looking elsewhere. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. A report on global trends by the UN Refugee Agency says a record 89.3 million people had been driven from their homes by war, violence, persecution and human rights abuse by the end of 2021. That's up 8% from the previous year. Again, Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. UN High Commissioner for Refugees Filippo Grandi says the figures are made even worse when the number of people forced to flee by Russia's invasion of Ukraine is included. And Ukraine has 
displaced uh, anyway between 12 and 14 million people, depending on how you count them. So the figure has exceeded a uh, hundred million. That this is due to a rise in conflicts and crises. Emergencies have caused the numbers to climb every year over the past decade. The UNHCR says Russia's Ukraine invasion has spurred the fastest and one of the largest forced displacement crises since World War II. While the world is focused on Ukraine, Grandi urges governments to pay attention to the many emergencies that have preceded Ukraine and continue to shatter the lives of millions of people. We had Ethiopia at the end of 2020 and through 21, we had uh, the Afghanistan situation in the summer of last year, Syria, for example, South Sudan, the question of Palestine refugees. These have been very long-standing crises that add to the numbers. The UNHCR says refugee numbers rose to more than 27 million last year, while those displaced by conflict within their own countries increased to 53.2 million. Dispelling common perceptions, the UNHCR says more than 80% of refugees fled to poor and middle-income countries. The report finds five countries, Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, and Myanmar, account for more than two-thirds of the globally displaced. It says Turkey took in the most refugees, followed by Colombia, Uganda, Pakistan, and Germany. The United States is still the top refugee resettlement country in the world. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. In other news, the UN says a third of Sudan's population is facing a food crisis due to the compounded impact of climate shocks, political turmoil and rising global food prices. A new report by the World Food Program and the Food and Agriculture Organization says that 50 million people face acute food insecurity across all of the East African country's 18 provinces. Eddie Rowe, WFP's representative in Sudan, says the international community, quote, must act now to avoid increasing hunger levels and to save lives of those already affected on court. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinero in Washington. Australia's new foreign minister, Penny Wong, has traveled to New Zealand as the Canberra government intensified its efforts to counter China's growing security and trade ambitions in the Pacific region. Australia is promising its regional neighbors stronger action to combat climate change. From Sydney, Phil Mercer reports. This is Penny Wong's third trip to the Pacific in less than a month. Since Australia's left-of-centre government won an election on May 21. She's been in Samoa, Tonga and Fiji as the recently elected government in Canberra races to challenge China's diplomatic efforts. On a visit Thursday to New Zealand, the foreign minister said Australia should be more engaged in the region, blaming the previous government in Canberra for inaction. Wong's whirlwind diplomacy follows an extensive tour of the region earlier this month by the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi. He failed to persuade ten Pacific Island nations to join a trade and security pact, although some, including Kiribati and Samoa, did sign individual accords. 
Beijing earlier agreed a security protocol with Solomon Islands, northeast of Australia, to enhance internal law enforcement and with relief from natural disasters. Officials in Beijing insisted China had no intention of competing with other countries for influence in the region. Australia and its allies are worried, however, the Solomon's Accord will eventually give Beijing a strategic military foothold in the region. Wong told Radio New Zealand that interference from countries outside of the region wasn't needed. Pacific security should be provided by the Pacific family. We do have concerns about the security of the Pacific being engaged in by nations outside of that Pacific family. Australia's relationship with China has been corroded in recent years by a range of political and trade disputes. Both Canberra and Wellington have watched nervously as China tries to expand its trade and security ties in the Pacific region. Earlier this month, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern met her Australian counterpart Anthony Albanese in Sydney. Climate change and geopolitics were discussed. Along with Australia's controversial policy of deporting New Zealanders convicted of crimes, Ardern's complaint was that many of those expelled have been in Australia for most of their lives and are sent to a country where they have few family connections. Albanese said his new government could soften Australia's deportation policy. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. Data from a European Space Observatory tells the history of our galaxy, and may even predict its future. Plus, the full moon was as close to Earth as it will be this year. And a look back at a true space pioneer, VOS Arash Rabasadi, brings us the week in space. We begin this week right here in our very own Milky Way galaxy, where the European Space Agency has big news. Launched in 2013, the Gaia Space Observatory maps the brightness, makeup, motion, and temperature of the stars around us as part of a bigger mission to create a 3D model of our galaxy and beyond. The latest data from Gaia sparked a discovery in a star's life cycle. Scientists hail Gaia's mapping work as crucial to the parallax method, which compares the difference in the direction a star appears to be traveling depending on where on Earth it is viewed. The Gaia mission aims to explain the billions of years-long evolution of our Milky Way galaxy while also helping to predict its future. In other news, if you were outside and looking up this week, you may have seen a phenomenon scientists call the strawberry supermoon. Its name comes from a Native American tradition, as the full moon glows at strawberry harvest time. Supermoons happen when our moon's orbit comes especially close to Earth. This strawberry supermoon glowed brightest on Wednesday, and if you missed it, there's always next year. Finally this week, we remember NASA's Pioneer 10 space probe that was the first craft to capture close images of Jupiter in 1973 after navigating the asteroid belt filled with everything from dust particles to chunks of rock as big as Alaska. This week in 1983, Pioneer 10 became the first spacecraft to leave our solar system. Godspeed, Pioneer. Arash Arabasadi. VOA News. This is Science in a Minute. Earth's magnetic field protects us from the continuous onslaught of dangerous and highly charged space particles and radiation. A 2020 investigation revealed that there is an unusually weak spot in the magnetic field called the South Atlantic Anomaly, located above South America. 
In past studies, it's been proposed that the magnetic field is due to reverse its polarity. North Pole would become the South Pole and vice versa. However, a new study led by Lund University in Sweden suggests that the current changes in the magnetic field aren't unique and that a pole reversal may not happen anytime soon. NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center says the poles last flipped about 780,000 years ago, and according to the fossil record, it had no significant effect on living organisms. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and our panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including the GOP coalition of 10 senators supporting a framework proposal to respond to the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, is set to come under intense pressure in the weeks ahead to prevent a defection, which would defeat the long-sought deal. For this and more, join us for Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 2105 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinadofa in Washington. Have a wonderful weekend. An editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. Palestinians in Gaza face harsh living and economic conditions under Hamas, even as the terrorist group has amassed hundreds of millions in a secret investment portfolio. Hamas maintains a violent agenda that harms both Israelis and Palestinians. The United States is committed to denying Hamas the ability to generate and move funds and holding it to account for its role in promoting and conducting terrorist acts. That's why the U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, designated a Hamas finance official as well as an expansive network of three Hamas financial facilitators and six companies that have generated revenue for the terrorist group through the management of an international investment portfolio. The individuals and companies listed below are being designated under Executive Order 13224 as amended, which targets terrorists, leaders, and officials of terrorist groups and those providing support to terrorists or acts of terrorism. Ahmed Sharif Abdallah Ode was in charge of Hamas's international investment portfolio until 2017 and subsequently oversaw the investment portfolio on behalf of Hamas's Shura Council. 
In mid 2017, Usama Ali was appointed as head of the investment office, a position from which he coordinated financial transfers to Hamas. Hisham Yunus Yahia Kafisha served as Usama Ali's deputy and played an important role in transferring funds on behalf of various companies linked to Hamas's investment portfolio. Anda Company, Aggregate Holding, Trend GYO, and Al Rawad Real Estate Development are all linked directly or indirectly to Hamas. Moreover, Sidar Company and Itkan Real Estate JSC both appeared to operate as legitimate businesses, but in practice were controlled by Hamas and transferred money to the group. And finally, Abdullah Yusuf Faisal Sabri is an accountant who has worked in the Hamas Finance Ministry for several years. These designations target the individuals and companies that Hamas uses to conceal and launder funds, said Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, Elizabeth Rosenberg. The United States is committed to denying Hamas the ability to generate and move funds and to holding Hamas accountable for its role in promoting and carrying out violence in the region. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 